The Buddhism and Breath Summit took place in 2021 with a group of researchers exploring Buddhist practices of working with the breath or the winds of the body. The event was co-hosted by me, Francis Garrett, and Pierce Salguero, and it was co-sponsored by the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto and Jivaka.net. The following talk is entitled, Creating Safer Spaces for Mindfulness of Breath, Non-White Western Practitioners' Experience of Race, Racism, and Whiteness in American Mindfulness. And it's delivered by Dr. Nalika Gajawira, who's a research anthropologist at the Center for Religion and Civic Culture at the University of Southern California. Her work focuses on the intersections of Buddhism, race, ethno-nationalism, and gender. You can watch the video of this talk and find other resources from the Buddhism and Breath Summit at jivaka.net. That's J-I-V-A-K-A, jivaka.net, N-E-T. Hello, my name is Dr. Nalika Gajvira. I am a research anthropologist at the Center for Religion and Civic Culture at the University of Southern California. The presentation today is entitled Creating Safer Spaces for Mindfulness of Breath, Non-White Westerners Practitioners' Experience of Race, Racism, and Whiteness in American Mindfulness. In Vipassana meditation practice, the first common object is the breath. From noticing the flow of air in the nostrils and the surface area above the upper lip to the rise and fall of the belly, the meditation involves shifting the center of attention to the body and bodily sensations. As any neophyte, meditation is quick to find out. A key part of awareness built through meditation is to acquire a particular attentiveness of the mind's embodied experience of the self. Through body scans, breath exercises, and mindfulness movements, a practitioner learns to be present. Silent meditation is meant to offer an analysis, or sorry, an ability to observe objectively without prejudgment, self-criticism at one's feelings, thoughts, and views. Indeed, in the now popular mindfulness moment in the West, the awareness cultivated through embodied practices such as anapanasati meditation is described as an effective therapeutic practice for Western students who, as seasoned meditation teacher Philip Motif says, are, quote, all too engaged in conceptualizations, close quote, whereas mindfulness focuses on the embodied self and brings attention to the visceral body rather than concepts and judgments about the body. A dual process of self-cultivation and self-knowledge, meditation on the breath promises the capacity to step back, to be somatically aware of oneself as an object in the world. Yet, as much as at first glance, mindfulness calls attention to the intimacies of one's breath in bodily silence, we also know that such self-cultivation practices, at least in the beginning, also depend on the physical proximity of silent others. Indeed, progress in meditation is often dependent on sharing a collective space, such as a retreat space, where in the context of sitting practice groups, an underlying silent mode of social interaction helps support the cultivation of meditation practice. 
While the daily social world is pushed to the background, the collective solitude of sitting spaces helps one turn at one's attention to what Michelle Pagas calls the inner lining of experience. In the brief time I have here, I want to critically evaluate how for non-white people of color in North America who practice in institutional spaces that are predominantly white, such silence and safety is interrupted by race. By drawing on fieldwork conducted in California among mindfulness communities, I explore key assumptions about mindfulness that North American Black and non-Black people of color expose and problematize through the engagement with mindfulness. The first is the dominant assumption found in mindfulness that emphasizes interiority and the quote-unquote inner self as a place of safety for people of self, for self-cultivation, as for practices of self-cultivation. Indeed, in meditation retreats, individuals are encouraged to leave behind their social identities and histories and instead focus on embodied present experience, away from the social gaze, in order to cultivate emotional well-being. Yet, for practitioners of color who inhabit bodies historically and socially supersaturated with racialized meaning, transcendence of social identity and history is unviable. Indeed, many practitioners of color find the prompt to turn to one's body into a turns one body into a sanctuary, the most challenging and problematic aspects of mindfulness pedagogy. I want to briefly then explore how black and non-black practitioners of color expose the assumptions of whiteness underlying mindfulness, where the body is assumed to be a safe zone away from the social white gaze. The second assumption that practitioners of color expose is the safety of mindfulness spaces themselves. Contrary to popular understandings of mindfulness as as an individual introspective practice, a critical dimension uh, to progress in the practice is the social environment that a meditator is immersed in. For many people of color, practicing in predominantly white institutions, the intersubjective space produced by what Pag is called the bodily stillness of others is however not free or empty of the white dominance and racial prejudices, prejudices they encounter outside of the meditation space. In what follows, I illustrate the strategies that practitioners of color develop to counteract the values and assumptions of whiteness in mindfulness spaces. Namely, I examine the efforts to create a people of color groups as safe space for the mindfulness, for the mindful uncovering of race as it is existentially lived and socially embodied. While mindfulness instruction often tends to emphasize the self-regulation of emotions, few see spaces resist such move towards individualism. Through the facilitation of POC spaces within and alongside dominant mainstream mindfulness centers, POC leaders encourage empathy and the recognition of practitioners' emotional connection to a shared historical experience as non-white bodies experiencing racialized suffering in the context of the U.S. On safe spaces. In its popular usage, mindfulness is a therapeutic modality for reducing stress and promoting emotional well-being. Body scans, breath practices, mindful movement, anchor awareness in the somatic body to tune in to one's embodied experience of the world. Ultimately, through such self-grounding, one returns more fully to the social world. 
Yet it is precisely this problem to quote unquote, let yourself be a sanctuary that POC practitioners often find is the most challenging and problematic of the mindfulness pedagogy. African-American Zen Buddhist teacher, Reverend Zenzu Ertle Manuel describes the problem here. Quote, in spiritual communities, especially in Buddhist ones, the teaching on finding home are profound, but they often leave out the experience of those who are dehumanized in their own homeland. Spiritual teachings like home is within the heart can be off-putting when low loss and disconnection aren't also acknowledged. Those who have such experiences can feel homeless spiritually and physically and finding refuge from acts of hatred must be offered along the path and in finding one's true home. Close quote. So meditation spaces have generally not offered people of color the space of refuge that Reverend Manuel finds necessary for self-discovery. North American meditation-based insight institutions such as Spirit Rock have until recently been almost exclusively white in composition. For example, Hayes et al. In 2019, showed even by 2014, at institutions at Inside Meditation Society in Massachusetts, the first, the second most predominant location in America, approximately 84% of the participants identified as white or of European descent. The demographic composition of most inside groups are similar. In such a case, many practitioners of color have felt guarded and unable to completely relax in the space. Caleb, an African-American person in, the mid, in his mid-30s from the Washington, D.C. area, described the experience of racialized embodiment in the context of practicing meditation in white dominant spaces in the following way. I noticed a lot of white people there. They didn't know how to engage with me. There was a lot of this hyper wanting to get to know me, the super excitement where it seemed a lot of code switching and just this over the top way, over the top ways of communicating with me. Oh, there was a serious hesitation, you know, a kind of fear. And, you know, I could feel that. Caleb's feeling of being essentialized in the context of mindfulness space is what critical race study scholars refer to when they describe black bodies as super saturated with meaning. That is Georgiansky. He experienced his experience, that is Caleb's experience of, quote, white people not knowing how to engage with me, close quote, highlights how these encounters in the seemingly empty space of mindfulness are overdetermined by racialized embodiment. The non-white individual is objectified and exotified as the other by the white gaze. Moreover, even as Caleb described the teachings he received as very, quote unquote, informative and pivotal, for his practice, he found that the resources that teachers drew on to connect to with the teachings were disconnected from the reality that he experienced as a person of color. He explains, I could relate to some of it. Oh, I couldn't relate to some of it, a lot of it. It was relating to white culture. You know, the people who are leading would share their personal experiences while being in corporate America or even using the practice in ways that for Black people and POCs reflected a lack of sensitivity to trauma and the historical experiences of Black people, close quote. Even when issues of identity are addressed, the results leave much to be desired. Indeed, for practitioners of color, opening up about the experiences of race 
within predominantly white spaces often elicits microaggressions. This was the experience of Alejandra. Alejandra, a native Angelino of descent, a Chicana descent, who had been practicing meditation for more than 15 years and facilitating POC groups in Southern California. She described her, plan her participation in a two-year workshop facilitated by an insight center that was centered on issues of identity and social justice. Unpacking experiences around race, however, provoked disagreement on its relevance to the teachings. What does race have to do with the Dharma? Why are we studying these? Studying this were some of the questions raised by Alejandra's white counterparts. Others sought a more conciliatory tone, referring to, quote, the universal humanity or the universality of Buddhist teachings. Such claims are a harmful disavowal of the racialized embodiment experience of non-white people. Aki, a leading Buddhist meditation teacher of Asian ancestry and prominent leader in established POC groups in the Bay Area, remarked on the typical response that she has heard given by teachers or facilitators when a student may pose the question, how can we respond to racism? Often, she finds teachers may respond by saying something like, quote, remember we're all one. We are fundamentally part of a unified humanity and we all have the same basic needs and we can empathize with one another despite our differences. It's out of that kind of really compassionate heart that we understand our basic interconnection, close quote. She finds that couched within this liberal injunction to realize the interconnectedness of humanity and equality between people is a disavowal of the lived experience of racialized embodiment. When mindfulness practitioners invoke the universalism in response to POC concerns about racial othering, by invoking our shared humanity, the history of racializations are, in, are erased and unacknowledged. As anthropologist Lisa Malki has said elsewhere, quote, dehistoricization de is inevitably a project of depoliticization, close quote. And this is what, something she wrote in 1996. To speak about the past, about the historical trajectories of slavery, segregation, and colonialism is, in fact, to speak about the politics of race and racialized history in the U.S. Insisting upon an abstract universalism silences the concrete reality of racialized particularity. In response, many non-white practitioners emphasize the need for safe or safer spaces exclusively for POCs. Such strategies of segregation enable a free exploration of the experiences and emotions that emerge in relation to racialized embodied subjectivity. Alejandra described the POC group she facilitates in the following way. I think what some people find really supportive is just an acknowledgement that they are a person of color. It sounds so basic, but it's true. I feel like in some of these spaces, especially in Dharma spaces, that acknowledgement that, hey, some of us are white, some of us aren't, and even naming race and even naming color is radical. So in POC spaces, we're not going to pretend that you're not here. This is part of your existence is important. This part of your existence is important. And we're going to touch into that. That's going to be the entryway to the rest of the Dharma, close quote. For non-white practitioners, this quote-unquote entryway 
and to have close attention to the racialized embodied experience in day-to-day life. Indeed, for some, many POC practitioners, uncovering what Du Bois described as quote-unquote double consciousness, that sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, what he said, requires a safe space for exploring the role of race and racialization in one's experience of self. POC spaces. Since the early 2000s, there's been a growing discussion among uh, POCs about potential solutions to this issue. A key outcome of this effect has been the establishment of specific retreat sitting groups for POCs within the major inside institutions or outside of them, serving a wide diverse community. When I'm, many of my interlocutors welcome the development of POC-focused meditation spaces. Jazz explained, when I'm in a POC space, I'm more comfortable, so my practice is just more relaxed. I just feel safer, even physically safer. I just feel like I can drop in so much more because then I can just be fuller in it and get more out of it. Like I'm not practicing with one eye open. Another POC practitioner, Derek, explains similar sentiment. When we allow ourselves to just sit there, just relax and open up and tell stories and laugh, it's, oh my God, it's such a distinctly different experience from me sitting in a small group where I'm the only person of color, close quote. Derek and Jazz are both African-Americans. They both first encountered Buddhism through reading books on meditation and Dharma, which later inspired them to explore Buddhist practice spaces, first groups and traditions related to Shambhala and Thich Han training, and then later finding regular practice through courses and trainings at Spirit Rock and Inside LA. Although regularly attending and practicing in such spaces was impactful in the cultivation of their meditation practice and discipline, they each articulated feelings of discomfort when inhabiting what they described as predominantly white spaces. As Derek explained, quote, as people of color in that setting, we don't necessarily open up or practice in the same way because we're still needing to make this all palatable and comfortable for white people. In a sense, we're making sure that we take care of them. Close quote. Jazz similarly explained, most of my introduction to Buddhist community has been in predominantly white spaces. I went to a predominantly white university and I went to a mostly white high school. So I'm familiar and comfortable, but I'm also guarded. I've had instances of saying things that people were offended by or they needed to be taken care of after, after I said something which is just way too much. Close quote. A key concern, therefore, involved the discomfort of inhabiting a dominant white space. It is a discomfort of being closed off, guarded, uneasy, buffered, or self-censured. Where opening up about one's experience inhabiting a racialized body posits posing offense or discomfort about or for their white counterparts. More critically, being the cause of such discomfort resulted in having to interrupt their own interior labor of mindful self-cultivation and instead labor to ensure the comfort and care of others who are made uncomfortable by their presence. Passing these experiences through the work of feminist queer theorist Sarah Ahmed offers valuable insights into understanding, understanding the phenomenology of discomfort and discomfort, my interlocutors described. Ahmed argues in her essays on heteronormity and whiteness that comfort is the effect of bodies being able to sink into spaces that have already taken their shape. 
Where to be comfortable is to be, quote unquote, so as at ease with one's environment that it is hard to distinguish where one's body ends and the world begins, close quote. Speaking directly on institutional whiteness, she says, quote, if white bodies are comfortable, it is because they can sink into that spaces that extend their shape, close quote. Institutional spaces are thus not empty, but rather Ahmed shows us that such spaces take shape by being oriented by some bodies more than others. Power permeates the space. She describes how when white bodies dominate institutions, as I and others have described in the case of white mainstream, mainstream institutions, the bodies and the institutions get oriented towards each other their bodies repeatedly extending silently, unnoticeably, and comfortably in such institutions. If, as Ahmed points out, white bodies gather and cohere to the form, the edges of such spaces, I suggest that even in the silence and solitude of a retreat space, without the apparent discursive layer of speech and judgment, whiteness can even inevitably extend into the space comforting or discomforting the bodies and breaths that inhabit it. Michelle Pagas's phenomenological analysis of her ethnographic work among the Pasana meditation retreats offers some further observations to helpfully tease out how whiteness can extend into the spaces in invisible ways. Pagas shows that although Vipassana training emphasizes shifts the, sh emphasizes shifting the mind's attention from the judgment of others, towards an internal gaze, it is an, quote, what she calls an unspoken synchronization and an entwining with the bodily stillness of others that produces a safe ground, an anchor from which meditators turn their gaze inward and attend to the tacit embodied dimensions of their being, close quote. What this astute analysis brings to a sharp relief is a role of others in shifting attention from the social world to what she calls the inner lining of experience. She describes this anchor as a silent socialization and into subjectivity of collective meditation environments. Although Pagas does not refer to the racial makeup of her field site, her point about this quote-unquote mutual attunement, when placed in relation to Armand's point regarding the silent extension of whiteness, suggests that meditation spaces primarily comprised of white bodies can tacitly serve as the safe ground for other white bodies. As Ahmed describes it, to be comfortable or to be relaxed is to be so at ease with one's environment that it is hard to distinguish where one's body ends and the world begins. It is a spaciousness that enables the turn inward to experience what Pagis calls the inner lining of experience. When non-white persons experience a failure to fit by saying too much or saying something overwhelmingly exotic or unpalatable, this is because they don't extend or properly sink into implicitly white normative spaces. This situation produces the discomfort that Ahmed describes as the effect of bodies inhabiting spaces that do not extend or take their shape. Indeed, when one's body does not sink in or into the space, one's body may contort, as one of my interlocutors described, or as Jazz only partly ingested, I sit with one eye open when I'm in white spaces. Drawing on both Ahmed and Pagis, I argue, therefore, in the context of institutional whiteness, 
of mainstream mindfulness, where space is shaped by the proximity of those white bodies. This institutional whiteness has an effect on the safety and comfort the space permits for other racialized bodies in the room to turn inward. Indeed, the tacit awareness of others and the bodily stillness of others, which Pragis refers to as serving to realign the gaze inwards, is frustrated when racialized difference brings to surface to one brings to surface one's racialized embodiment. This is all the ma ma this is made all the more painful when such experiences is insisted as something to be transcended by transcended. In response to this struggle, we now have POC sanghas, uh, so-called safe or safer spaces to foster an environment in which difficulties of otherness inhabited on a day-to-day -day basis can be safely experienced and interrogated. In the creation of these spaces, practitioners seek to create a social space for opening up the possibility for non-white bodies to sink in with more ease into spaces, which, are which at least temporarily extend their shape. To conclude my discussion today, I want to raise a question that returns us to the topic of breath and Buddhism. As I noted in the beginning, the breath is a key object of attention in Buddhist disciplinary practice. By allowing the breath to be focused on your awareness, one lets the whole social world full of discursive thought, self-reflexivity and judgment move in to the background. Yeah, we know this, that as, an intim as, as intimate and solitary as this practice is, many individuals turn to communities of solitary practice as anchors for their practice. But as much as such spaces are assumed to be free of discursive thought and history, these institutional spaces are saturated with history. In the context of the United States, this is the history of slavery, segregation, settler colonialism, concentration camps, and above all, whiteness. And the bodies that occupy these spaces, white and non-white, register such histories into the present. As much as those same histories can abruptly and brutally sever the breath of black and brown bodies, Recall here the dying last words of George Floyd and Eric Garner, I can't breathe. Those same histories too permeate and penetrate the noble silence of the meditation hall, interrupting the noble breath of brown and black bodies. In the context of such racialized history in the United States, how then we might we come to understand the noble breath not as an empty and neutral, but as supersaturated with history and meaning. 